Our Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men. There are so many things they could be doing right now, things that are necessary, but they have chosen the most important thing, that one thing that matters most, which is to be at your feet and to be in fellowship with you, to be open to your spirit, to worship you, and to have fellowship with one another. So I'm asking that now as we've gathered that this time would be profitable for all of us, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would draw us together, and that, Lord, that we'd be equipped for works of service. Use this passage to help us, enlighten us, strengthen us, remind us, and uh, we also would pray that you would change us in such a way that, that those who know us best will know that you've been working in our lives, that our, we who are married, that our, our wives uh, might see a, a changed man, uh, we who are fathers, that our, our children might see how important you are to us and, and that they would worship our God, the God that we choose to serve. Lord, I just ask that you'd work in this ministry, that you would uh, anoint Pastor Manny, Father. Thank you for the worship team that, that brought worship to you. Keep working here in this city, Lord. Be glorified and use these men. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, fellas. And if you will, open your Bibles to uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. I want to share with you today out of verses 1 through 12, a passage that is familiar to all of us. But I want to give to you a couple of thoughts from this passage that perhaps can be of encouragement to us as, uh, as men who want to be used by the Lord. Almani, this is the first time I've ever been actually stopped in Almani. <laughs> we kind of like drive through it, you know. I'm from Norwalk, and so we used to hear about Almani, in, but we didn't want to come here. <laughs> I'm scared. In chapter 2, verse 1, reading to verse 12, we have a very familiar story. Mark writes, Again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken uh, through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go your way to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Can you imagine that? Well, Jesus, as we get into this, let me give you a little bit of an introduction, give you a context so that you can 
see the flow of, of Mark's uh, gospel here. Jesus has been doing his ministry. He's been teaching and healing. He's been casting out demons. He's been preaching through the north, a region in the north that is called the Galilee. And his fame is now spreading. He's becoming one of those that is extremely sought after. The people have become impressed by this man. They're impressed by his power, by his authority. They're especially impressed by the love that he has. So he's been preaching. He's been healing. He's been casting out demons. As a matter of fact, Mark made it very clear that he had recently healed Peter's mother-in-law, had cleansed the leper. Now, there are those who, by the way, would... I was asked this one time. They said, do you know why Peter denied the Lord? And I thought for a moment, and I thought he must have some kind of very deep answer for that one. Why did Peter deny the Lord? So I said, okay, tell me why. Why did Peter deny the Lord? And he said, because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. So I, I don't know if that's true or not, but... But that's worth thinking about. <laughs> Rawl told me that. I'm not sure if that's true. <laughs> As we look at this, if you looked into chapter 1, you'd see that he's becoming very popular. In chapter 1 here in the Gospel of Mark, for example, it says at verse 32, at evening when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. If you looked at verse 45 in chapter 1, he went out and began to proclaim it freely to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every quarter. So Jesus' popularity is growing so much so that they're beginning to flood. Every time he's ministering, they come to hear him. Now, it's interesting to note that the people were beginning to not only pursue him, but they were also becoming divided amongst themselves because they knew he was doing ministry and they knew he was doing miracles, but there were those who were starting to say that his power wasn't from God, that his power was from Beelzebub. So that argument between is Jesus ministering from the power of God or from the power of Satan was beginning to rise even at that time. So even when good things are being done, there are people who will look at those good things and find a reason to deny the reality of those things, which we're seeing today in the church, right? The church does good works, and yet the press doesn't seem to notice that. The only thing the press seems to notice is when there's somebody who failed in the church. So it's something that we're aware of even to this day. And so Jesus' popularity is considerably growing and all. And as this is taking place, Jesus has returned, as it says here in verse 1, to a city called Capernaum. And it says, after some days it was heard that he was in the house. So he didn't enter into the city unnoticed. He couldn't simply move freely. People were now following him, and he's in the home of Simon Peter. Now, Simon's home was a one-story small dwelling with a flat roof and a courtyard, and outside there were some stairs that led to the roof. You need to have that in your mind because we'll see that in just a moment. And so as this is taking place, notice verse 2, immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Now, I want to make a few points from this one verse here. I want to develop something with you here. I want you to notice that wherever Jesus is, there is a crowd. 
And that's because where Jesus is, people want to be. The question is, now that there's a crowd gathered, what is the Lord Jesus Christ going to do? It's interesting to note that their lack of convenience and comfort didn't matter to them. They gathered together because there was something about him that drew them to him. I got saved in 1970, ancient history for most of you, I'd suppose, as a hippie, went to the Hollywood Palladium. We didn't have chairs. We all sat on the carpet. The number of kids who were present the day I got saved, I believe, was somewhere around 4,000. So we were all seated at the Hollywood Palladium on carpet. It didn't matter that we didn't have chairs, and it didn't matter that it was inconvenient to be there. There was something greater there that drew us. Now, the first time I ever came to Calvary Chapel was there was only one, and I still in my mind, as long as Pastor Chuck was alive, there really was always only one. That was Costa Mesa. The rest of us who became affiliates were simply privileged to have fellowship with Chuck Smith, who was my pastor, our pastor. But the first time I went to Calvary Chapel was in the summer of 1970. I believe I was 19, maybe 20 years old at the time. And a friend of mine named Bill had been asking me to go to church with him, and I wouldn't go because I was raised a Catholic. He was raised a Lutheran. We never talked religion. It was not something important to us. Suddenly, he got religious. And for me, it was a problem because he and I had known each other. We were in kindergarten together. And he and I had known each other since we were very small. We smoked our first joints together. We, we drank our first wine together. We got arrested together. I mean, we were tight. <laughs> and so for him, for him to be getting religious and wanting me to go to church, I, I, I couldn't get into that. I, I, I thought, there's something wrong with you. And, and we, would, we would argue, he and I, about religion. Problem was, he would talk to me uh, as, as a Protestant, and he'd put down my Catholicism, which I didn't know anything about Catholicism, really. I mean, I, I got my, my first communion, and I, I was baptized, you know. I wonder how many of you guys were baptized in the little church there in Alvarez Street. How many have you? you know, a, lot, a lot of you Mexican guys, you know, we, for some reason we go there. My mom took me there when I was four months old. And I got baptized in, in the little plaza church there in Alvarez Street. I had a cousin named Carly, Carlitos, and he was a Jehovah's Witness. And we would argue religion smoking pot. So that was my background, right? And my hope to get to heaven was to marry a good Catholic woman who would pray my soul out of purgatory. And that was my hope for eternal life. That was my life. You know, church was where you went for weddings, for funerals, um, baptisms, or on Easter or Christmas. That was kind of my religious life. So now I've got this guy speaking to me about the Lord Jesus Christ, wanting to argue theology with me, when I knew a lot of Catholic doctrine because I was trained in the catechisms as a kid. 
So I had my confirmation. I had my communion. I, I knew the basics of Catholicism. So when he tried to argue with me, I couldn't handle it. It really bothered me that he had the nerve to do that. And so finally he kept asking me to go to this church, and I finally went to it. And I still remember smoking some pot, drinking some beer. I didn't have any shoes on. I was a hippie. And I knew that I would be kicked out of the church once I got there. I knew that because if I'd have gone to St. Pine's, I went to St. Pius X Church in Santa Fe Springs. If I would have been walking in loaded and alcohol on my breath, barefoot into St. Pius, they would have escorted me out. And I knew it. So you can't imagine what I felt like when I walked in there and they didn't escort me out. And then the guy who gave the Bible study was freakier looking than I was. And, and, and it wasn't Chuck Smith, by the way. It was a guy named Lonnie Frisbee. And so he was the premier hippie. I mean, he looked like Jesus. He had this big old beard, long hair. And I thought, man, this is freaky because I like this place. There's good music here. The people are cool. I enjoyed it. And so for me, that was my first experience. And so I didn't really need to have uh, a nice... A comfortable place to be seated. There was something there that was greater than any that you know than anything I'd felt anywhere else, and I just didn't know what it was. It was Jesus Christ, and wherever the Lord is, and I'll get into this in just a moment. Wherever the Lord is, people will come. Where Jesus is, people will come. See, people have a problem with the church. It's it's not even that they really understand they have a problem with Jesus. They say, Jesus is okay, it's his followers I have a problem with. And then sometimes some of us, let's face it, we just aren't the kind of people that are loving and caring, forgiving. We're we're portrayed by the press as as just monsters, intolerant, hate-filled people. And they've been very successful at presenting us in that way. They never present the good works that we do. They only want to present the things that we don't do well. And so where Jesus really is, you're going to have something that draws people. Bottom line, bottom line. And when Jesus is there, people will show up. We'll look at that in a little bit, a little deeper than that in just a moment. Now, who are these people who are coming to see the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, there's at least three groups that would be present. They were present most of the time. Even to this day, these three groups are are there. One, there would be disciples of Jesus present, And they would come because they were hungry for truth and they wanted to hear him speak. Second, there would be groupies who came just to be part of a crowd out of curiosity. And then third, you had the religious people, the Pharisees. These were people filled with envy and they were always looking to discredit him. Those three crowds, by the way, three types, are usually in most churches. You're going to have the hungry, you're going to have the curious, and you're going to have the critical. You have that in church all the time. And that's who was present there that day. So as he's looking out, what does he do? Notice with me, he preached the word to them. Why, Jesus, did you preach the word to them? He preached the word to them because the crowd needed to become a convert. These people needed to hear from God. They needed something that would change their lives. And that comes through the word of God. You can mark that in your heart and remember that forever. That is the center of ministry and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus' purpose was to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. In John 5, 24, he says it like this. He said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me 
has eternal life, will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death into life. People shouldn't come just to hear him speak, and they shouldn't come just to wonder at his works. People need to come so they can be saved and so they can be equipped. And the signs that Jesus performed were intended to draw them, but his words were intended to save them. Jesus didn't come just to meet physical needs, and he didn't come to entertain curious crowds. He came to bring truth, a truth that sets a captive free, and believers are to remain faithful to the preaching of the Word of God. When you would hear Pastor Chuck speak in the early days, even until the very end, if you were to ask Chuck what was the secret of his ministry, he'd tell you. I can tell you right now. You already know it. He'd say the Word of God and the Spirit of God. That's what he would say. It's the Word of God and it's the Spirit of God. That is what made Calvary Chapel, and that's what makes Calvary Chapel to this day. It's the Word of God and it's the Spirit of God. The importance of the Word of God is extreme to us. It's because to know the truth is to be made free. Truth sets you free. Lies keep you in bondage. And God's word will set you free. And so the important thing for us is always going to be the teaching and the preaching of the word of God. Somebody once said, preaching the word of God, this is the battering ram, which is to shake the gates of hell and break its iron bars. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching that by it he might save those who believe. Preaching is the blast of the ram's horn used to level Jericho. It is God's chariot of fire for bearing souls to heaven, his two-edged sword to smite the hosts of hell. His ordained servants are at once warriors and builders. The word serves them both for spear and for trowel. Preach then from morning until night at every time and on all occasions the unsearchable riches of Christ. Somebody once said, preaching the word of God, this is what God has called us to do. And that's what we need to be doing to this day. Now, there are those who have developed church services and churches on, uh, on various things that will not last. They have entertainment. And this isn't that you shouldn't uh, come and enjoy yourself, but they have entertainment. And sometimes they make their worship services to be almost like concerts where you're actually hearing just the music, but you're not kissing the face of Christ. You know, the word worship means worthyship. It's, it's a word that is Old English that speaks about giving to God that which is his due. And in the Greek, the word proskuneo speaks of being on your face forward towards someone. It speaks of adoration and actually it speaks of intimacy. When you worship, you're to be worshiping God. But what we have today, we have to be careful about is that people come to be entertained. They come to be entertained by personalities. They come to be entertained by topical studies that are speaking to their current situation. They come in order that they might hear good music. There are some, right now there are arguments in some churches going, well, shouldn't we have smoke machines and shouldn't we, you know, and the whole nine yards. And I'm telling you that some places people will line up to get in for the entertainment. But here's the thing, I've told my church this before, I'll share it here at the same time. I love to worship the Lord, I love to worship Him in, in song. We've been called by God to worship in spirit and truth. That's why we were saved, that we might worship him and enjoy him forever. That's why we're saved, that we might have a relationship with God. But the bottom line is, if you're not equipped with the word of God, 
and you have your mind on something else, you're not going to see people saved. The next time a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and knocks on the door and begins to speak to you telling you that Jesus is the first creation of God, and you pull out your tambourine and start singing, Our God is a mighty God, that isn't going to save them. It's the Word of God that does. It's the preaching of the Word of God. And the time will come when people will no longer endure healthy teaching, but will turn into others. He said, the scripture says they will, they will heap into themselves teachers having itching ears. They'll be turned aside from the truth and turned into fables. We're living in that day right now where people are looking and saying, well, there are a lot of people there. There must be truth being preached from that pulpit when in fact, in many places, truth is absent from that pulpit. One woman in, who's the wife of the best-known pastor, quote-unquote, in the United States. He's got a church that has 48,000 members. She was saying recently that worship is really about yourself, that when you worship, it's about you, and that God is happy when you're happy because that's what worship is. Now, when you have that mentality, guys, you are also very weak because you're not mighty in the things of God. It's the Word of God. So every person who's a member of this church or a member of a Bible-teaching church, pray for your pastor every day that he does not get caught up wanting to build a group of people because crowds have to be converts. Crowds need to be changed into the body of Christ or all you have is a bunch of religious people. We don't want religious people. We want righteous people. And righteous people come that way through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the embracing of the word of God and the transformation that comes when you receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior. That's how it works. That's what God intended to do. That's why Jesus Christ came preaching the word of God so that people would hear that truth and be set free. Not all present came to hear his words. Some came in order to find fault with what he had to say, that they might form an accusation against him. It says in Luke 5.17, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law representing every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And these came to criticize. They came to find fault with him. So as this is taking place, notice verse 3. They came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. He was incapable of moving about, so four men carried him to Jesus. As those who truly loved him, they brought him to the one who could relieve his suffering. In Proverbs 17, 17, it says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. True friends are the ones who bring you to the Lord. They're the ones who refuse to take you away from him. When I got saved, God began to do some radical things in my life. One of the things in my life, and I think some of you men can probably relate to this. I was an alcoholic. So when I got saved, I tasted of the new wine, and I didn't want the old anymore. I wanted the new. Have you ever awakened with a Holy Ghost hangover? I never have. You ever vomit with too much Holy Spirit? Doesn't work that way, right? You ever get arrested for being too filled with the Spirit? No, my first arrest, I had three arrests that were alcohol-related. I, I, I liked to drink, and then I'd get in trouble. Then I'd be put in jail. And so when I got saved, I said, I don't want this life anymore. But you want to know something? I had a friend of mine who had been raised in the church, 
who was just getting to the point where he was seeing his grace and liberty that he has in Christ. So he wanted me to drink with him, but this is what God had pulled me out of, and it stumbled me. It stumbled me because I had a guy who used grace as an excuse to go to that which I was rescued from, and he began to encourage me that it was okay to drink. And I got to this point where I began to wonder, Lord, am I legalistic? Is there something wrong with me? What's wrong with a beer? What's wrong with a couple beers? And I was really wrestling with that because my friend was a Christian all his life, and I was a new believer, and he must know more than me. I was at a uh, pizza parlor, and I was seated in the pizza parlor with my friend. My friend says, you know what tastes good with pizza? Beer. So he orders a pitcher. You know, and I'm thinking, yeah, beer and pizza, that's good. That's good, you know. And I'm seated there. He pours me a glass. He pours himself a glass. And I'm sitting there with an older man. I was in my early 20s. An older man, he had to be at least 60 years old, came walking in. And he sits directly across from me. I mean, he was, he was easily six feet away, eight feet away at the most. He was right there. I was looking right at him. And he comes in, and he's facing me. And I, as I'm looking at him, my friend is pouring the beer. The man looks in my direction. I've got pizza. I've got a beer. And the Spirit of the Lord speaks to my heart and said, I'll never forget this. He said, go share my love with that man. And I said, I can't. I can't. I'll never forget this true conversation. I can't. Why? Because I have a beer in front of me. And if I go and share with him about how good God is and he sets you free, all he can see is the beer. That's all he's going to see. And I was arguing with the Lord. This is a true story. I'm not making this up. This is a true story. As God is my witness, off the street, through that door, come two young men. One man sat on the right, there's bench seats. He sat on one side. The other young man sat on the other side. One of them pulled out a pocket Bible, opened it up and started sharing the gospel with this man right in front of me. And the Spirit of the Lord said this to me, and I've never forgotten. He said, if I can't use you, I will use somebody else. And, I, and, and that's what began the change in my life where I said, I want to be used by the Lord. Don't hang around. And this, I'll talk to you as an old man. You can get mad at me and talk to Manny later. <laughs> Don't hang around in a Christian fellowship way with those who influence you to sin. Be careful because your friends are your pastor. Keep that in mind. Your friends are your pastor. All I am is a speaker. All Manny is is a speaker until you own that man as your shepherd. The real shepherding takes place, and I've told my church this many times, after Sunday services when they go to the restaurants and discuss the sermon. And the guy says, ah, you know, he's a little, you know, you know, he came from Rawls Church. You know how Rawls is. <laughs> I'm serious. Am I wrong? I'm not wrong. Well, you know how that is, man. You've got a little more grace, you know. And as a, you know, and that's what's happening. And I've asked him, you know, I've asked these, uh, you know, these sipping saints. I've, I've asked them, when's the last time you led someone to Christ? When's the last time you cared about somebody's soul? Because you're so caught up with your, with your freedoms that you're leaving them in sin. You're so caught up wanting to be free in Christ that they're remaining in bondage to sin because your freedoms are more important than their salvation. 
Be aware of that, because that's exactly what's taking place today. 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Don't forget that. I had another friend named George Adams. Some of you have heard me share this, I'm I'm pretty sure, because I've said it many times. George Adams believed that Jesus was returning any moment. He really did. And he'd tell me, you know, David, the next thing on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. I'm a new Christian. Well, what's the rapture? Oh, Jesus is going to come. He's going to take the church, and he's explaining it to me. Really? Really? We're going to get out of here? Yeah. The Lord's coming. He's going to remove us in in an instant in the twinkling of an eye. There's going to be a a shout, and there's going to be the the sound of a trumpet, and, and we're going to be gone. And he taught me the rapture. So he and I, I climb in the car. He's going with me someplace i back out of the driveway i pull up to a stop take a left turn he's seated shotgun his the passenger door swings open george always had a pocket bible he had told me listen you got to carry the sword and he would pull out his pocket bible or bring your switchblade (laughs) and so george the door swings open and when the door swung open he had his bible in his hand And he lifted both of his hands over his head and he leaned out the door like this. And I hit the brakes. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I thought the rapture happened, that Jesus is a gentleman and he opened my door. (laughs) True, he really believed that. But I'm thinking, then why was my door still closed? (laughs) I guess I'm not ready to go. This man influenced me. He influenced me for good. He influenced me for good. He was the guy who would, would he'd, he'd come and hug me. Now, I come from a background where you, men don't do that. Men don't do that. My, my, dad, my, if my dad showed affection. It was when he hit me in the back of the head. That was it. That was affection. for And, and I finally had to ask my mom, why does dad hit me? And she said, because he loves you. Maybe he could love me a little bit less. <laughs> But that's, that was affection to my dad. My dad, like I would I, assume almost all of us in this room, never told me he loved me until I was 17 years old. It's the first time I ever heard my dad say, I love you. My dad didn't do that. My mom said, your dad works hard. He puts food on the table, puts shoes on you, your feet and pants on you and clothes on you, and he takes care of you, and that's what he does. He loves you. But he never said it. He never showed it, right? Now, I have a friend named George, and George will walk up and hug me. And I, 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 it was kind of odd. In, in a way, I thought, well, I think we're supposed to love each other. The Bible says that. But I kind of feel more comfortable when the, the girls hug me. <laughs> you know, and George, I mean, what's that all about? You know, and I, or when you would hold hands and pray. You know, I don't know if you guys do that to this day. We, I don't think we do it in our church. I, I, well, we do on every Sunday, but well, we used to stand and hold hands and pray and and when a man held my hand, I was real uncomfortable with that. I just didn't like men holding. I'd squeeze their hands real tight, you know. <laughs> don't get any weird ideas. You know? <laughs> but George was loving. So you can make choices. Either you hang with the guys who are going to bring you down or hang around with the guys who are going to bring you up. And then make a choice. Are you going to be the guy who brings them down or are you going to be the guy who brings them up? It's your choice. And so use the right models and be a friend. 
Because this man had friends, and a real friend will bring you to Christ. A real friend brings you to Christ. These four men made an effort to bring this one man who could not bring himself. They made an effort to bring him to the feet of Jesus Christ. Now, notice with me what the scripture says. Um, there were so many people in verse 2 that were gathered together, there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And Jesus was preaching. So what happens? Well, it says in verse 4, when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So during that time, they had this roof where they would go onto the top of the roof when it was real hot outside, and they could be there in the cool of the evening. And they actually broke it open. And as they broke it open, they made it large enough for them to be able to lower this man down so he could come into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were working furiously. You can almost see that in your mind's eye. There's debris that's falling. There's a billowy cloud. There are particles that are drifting in the dust. The sunlight begins to filter in. The bottom of a mat appears. Slowly, gently, they lower the bed on which their friend is lying. So their faith was something that was active. These four men were working as a team of ministers, and they brought them to the Lord. Here's another application for you. What made the Jesus movement the Jesus movement, and what makes the Jesus movement today still the Jesus movement? It is this. We bring our friends to Christ. We're an evangelistic movement. Pastor Chuck is a pastor teacher. He was a pastor teacher. All of us who knew him know that about him. And sometimes we forget that what he was also was a, 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 an absolutely powerful evangelist. And Chuck wanted people to know Christ. And that's what he imparted to us. You see, that's what followers of Jesus do. They bring people to Jesus Christ. And I got saved. I went across the street. I was supposed to get loaded that day. My friend Bill, who basically kidnapped me and took me to the Hollywood Palladium. Um, when he dropped me off at my house, I had gotten saved. I was supposed to get loaded that day. I had a friend who received a kilo of uh, marijuana from Thailand. We used to send it in stuffed animals before they had the drug-sniffing dogs. And so we would get kilos from Thailand in stuffed animals at LAX. And so they went to pick up the shipment. It was just a stuffed animal. They didn't know what was in it. And so I was planning on getting loaded. And I had gone to my friend's house and I had told him, you know, I've got something important to do today, which was to go get high. It was December 27th, two days after Christmas. I was celebrating Christmas for a couple extra days. And so I had told my friend Bill, I'm not going to go. And Bill said, they prayed and said, God says you need to go. And that's how I got saved. Now I come home, and I walk across the street to the house that I was going to be partying in to tell my friends that I've turned away from the weed and I've turned to Jesus Christ, but they're not there. So I tell their mom, and I tell two of the sisters. I come across the street, and I walk into the den at my parents' house, and I say, Mom, Dad, my two sisters, Becky, Madeline, I love you. Praise the Lord. And I walk out of the room. My mom and dad freak out. My sisters follow me out of the room, and I go into another room, and I see my mom walk by, and she's just looking at me like my son lost his mind. 
she went and did a rosary for me in her bedroom. And so I tell my sister Madeline and Becky, this is what happened. My sister Madeline gives her heart to Christ that night. She puts her head on the, on the pillow and she said, whatever it is you did for my brother, do that for me. Then three weeks later, I'm reading the Bible like they taught us to. I get to Revelation 9. I begin to see these things of, of women with, men with women's hair and things of that nature. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. I take the Bible, and my mom and dad are in the kitchen. And I say to my dad and my mom, Mom, Dad, this is the Word of God. Let me read it to you. I read to them, and I say to my dad, I don't know what this means, but I do know this. It's not speaking to me. It's speaking to you. And I said to my dad, Dad, you're a good man. You are the best man I'll ever know. But if you don't give your heart to Jesus Christ, you will be the best man in hell. And I said, bow your head. You're receiving Christ as your Savior right now. And my dad bowed his head, and he got saved. And my mom bowed her head, and she got saved. They became two of the very first people I ever taught the Bible to. But I led them to Christ. My sister came to faith in Christ. My brother, in 1974, comes to faith in Christ. I start teaching a Bible study at his house in Ontario. That's how I ended up in Ontario. And I started teaching Bible study. A young woman named Marie shows up for a Bible study, gets saved in the Bible study, needs discipling, and now I'm married to her. <laughs> That's how that works. And it's all because you want them to know Jesus Christ. Guys, don't let the fire go out. Because in these days, the fire is going out in the church. I guarantee you it's going out because we're so caught up with, you know, with, did I enjoy my church experience today? We're so caught up with, did he speak to me the way I need you? We're so narcissistic. We're so caught up with our own pleasure that we're not dying to self anymore. We're living for self. And when you live for self, you will not win anyone to Jesus Christ. When you die to self, that's when God uses you to bring people to faith in Christ. It's a very important principle that you need to understand. That was the heart and is the heart of what is called the Jesus movement. I would assume every one of us in this room knows at least one person who doesn't go to church and doesn't know Jesus. Easter's coming. Take the opportunity. Invite them to receive what God gave to you. And if a person doesn't want to, it's because they're quenching the spirit in their own life and have forgotten how good God really is. So repent and return to your first love because that's what it's all about is winning the lost and watching them disciple and grow up and then win the lost themselves. And that's what happens. Friends bring friends to Jesus. Well, Jesus, according to verse 5, saw their faith. So he speaks to the paralytic and says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. So their faces are sweaty, their hands are dirty. And that shows that faith has works. James 2.17 says, Faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. But it says that Jesus saw their faith. Notice, but he spoke to the paralyzed men. Man, he, Jesus moved to relieve the man's pain and bring him to comfort. So he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. That word forgiven literally means to be sent away, done away with. They've been driven away from you. Psalm 103.12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, if you had a globe, and you've all heard this illustration, you start at the equator and go north. You go north until you get to the top of the globe, and then what happens? You go south, right? You hit the top and you go south.
But if you go from the, the west and just start going west, you will never go east. You're always going to go west. You don't. If you go north, you'll come to south. But if you go west, you'll never go to east. What is God saying? I'm removing them that far away. They're never going to be brought up again. And that's what God did in your life, by the way. You know who likes to remind you of your sins? Satan. You know who else? Your wife. You know who else? <laughs> Shouldn't have said that, right? But the enemy loves to remind you, and so does your flesh. So does your flesh, right? You've always been this way. You'll never be anything else. Anybody here ever have anybody whisper in your ear or shout it out? You're nothing. You're no good. You'll never amount to anything. You're just nothing. You're just nothing. Did you ever tell yourself that? I told myself that for years. You're nothing. You're stupid. You'll never amount to anything. You can't do it. You start something, you quit. You'll never make it. And then one day I got saved. And God said, no, if I've begun a work in you, I'll continue it. And I'll complete it. Because God doesn't begin a work that he doesn't intend to not complete. He's going to complete it. He start the work. He will continue the work. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Your sins are gone. When Jesus washed you clean with his blood, they're gone forever. But you need to live as one who understands that. Because the enemy likes to draw you back. Oh, you're an alcoholic, man. Listen, I'll give you one more story. I'm a storyteller today for some reason. I was a young believer. My wife and I, she got saved in my Bible study, respected me as a man of God, even though I was a young man when we got married. Things were just falling apart around me. I'm living in a, an apartment in Roland Heights. I had to quit school, trying to find work, not doing well at all. Still have bills, no work, failure. And the way that I dealt with my failure before I got saved was drinking. Because for me, drinking gave me the freedom to cry. Because without alcohol, I wasn't, I, I, you know, I would use it as an excuse. You know, you know I, you, when you're drunk, you can do two things. One, you can say to your girlfriend, oh, I love you. And I, oh, I so love you. You can do that when you're drunk. Because later on you can say, oh, I'm sorry, baby, I was drinking. But at the same time, at the, am I wrong? No, I'm right. And what happened is at the same time you say, I really love you, but if you go out with that guy, I'll kill you. You can be mad and love at the same time when you're drinking. And that's kind of how I was. And so Maria had never seen me drink. She didn't know that was my past because I had been cleansed and I hadn't been drinking. You know, I wanted to be used by God. I hit that point, that wall emotionally where I said, I'm, just, I'm not going to make it. I went and bought some beer, drank. Went and bought some more beer, drank some more. She's making dinner for me while I'm drinking. And I got high. And I walk up the stairs in our little apartment, close the door, lay down on this bed. Our bed was a roll-out bed. We didn't have a real bed. It was one of these sofa beds. That's what we had when we got married. I didn't have anything. I didn't have two nickels rubbed together. I was broke, broke, broke. And I didn't give her a good life. And I was laying in my sofa bed that was all bowed in the middle, and I started to cry. 
because that's why I was drinking. I wanted to let it out, and I didn't know how to, and I wouldn't do it in front of my wife. And I cried so loud, I actually put a pillow in my, over my mouth to cry and stifle the tears. I, she heard me. She was downstairs. I still remember hearing her little footsteps as she walked up the stairway and the door swinging open and the light hitting me. I still remember that. I had turned the light off, and the light from the hallway hit me. And she came walking in, and she sat next to me. What's wrong? And I said, you married the wrong man. You married a failure. You married the wrong man. You deserved better than what you got. What you got was a loser. And I just wept and wept. And you know what she did? She hit me. No, what'd she do? <laughs> With her shoe. She, she picked me up. She pulled me up and lifted me. I still remember that. She lifted me and put my head on her shoulder and rocked me like a child, like a baby. And she rocked me. And she said, you're not a loser. God will use you. God will use you. You're not a loser. God's going to use you. And I've told my church this. I stand in pulpits like this today because of the grace of God and a wife who would not condemn me by the grace of God and coming to the knowledge of being forgiven of my sins. He forgives you of your sins. Listen, this guy needed forgiveness more than his ability to walk. He needed forgiveness more than his ability to walk. Jesus saw that. Son, your sins are forgiven you. And then everybody freaks out. Who is this who forgives sin? Only God forgives sin. Well, that's true, isn't it? God is the one who forgives sin. What is Jesus saying? I am the God who forgives sins. And as he does that, and everybody starts looking at what's going on here, so which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say pick up your mat and take a walk? Which is easier? One's invisible. You don't really know if that's happening. The other's very visible. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He turns and looks at the man and he says to him, I say unto you, rise, take up your bed and walk. That's what God does to you guys. See that thing that used to carry you? You carry that now. That thing that used to bury you? You can bear it in Jesus Christ. You don't need to be in that bed anymore. and You don't need to be paralyzed anymore. You can be set free because Jesus forgives sins. And the things that we need the most, the thing that I needed the most wasn't success and education. What I needed the most was forgiveness. And that's what God gave to me, and that's what God gives to us. So when you take the message of the gospel out, you're actually helping cripple people to walk to this day. You're helping the cripple pick up that bed and walk. Is there anything greater than that? I don't think so. I don't think so. Listen, my dad, who I led to Christ, had a heart attack. And my mom calls me and says, Daddy's had a heart attack. I come at the hospital. And my mom says, you know what Daddy did just before we called the ambulance and I said what she said daddy prayed and I said well my dad was a praying man so I said yes do you know what he prayed no mom I don't he said father be with my wife my dad's faith 
towards Christ made him a man of God that would even, when he was going to go home to be with the Lord, the last prayer that I remember my dad ever praying was for somebody else, especially that woman whom he called Mama. He never used her name. She was just Mama. The last words my father ever said, the last word was when he mouthed Mama to her. The last thing he ever said, Mama. That was my dad. Daddy never taught me how to love a woman. He never said, son, these are the five things that made our marriage good. My dad just loved a woman. And when you see a man who is as cold as my dad was, turn into a man who loved like my dad did, you see the power of the Holy Spirit. You see the work of God in somebody's life. And that's what God wants to do in yours too. And that's what God wants to do in mine. He wants to make us men who can walk, walk with Jesus Christ and bring our friends to Christ. Father, I ask that you would work with us today and that you would do your work in us by the power of your spirit. And Lord, I lift up these men, your men, and I ask that by your Holy Spirit you would work within each one of us that we would love you with the deepness of our heart for the rest of our lives. Lord, I give you praise for this, and I give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.